My brothers and sisters, while serving 13 and one-half years as secretary to the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, my testimony was strengthened concerning living prophets. The Lord said through the prophet Joseph Smith, The Twelve Apostles are called to be special witnesses in the name of Christ in all the world. Prophets have a special gift of the Spirit, a prophetic gift. During the time I served as secretary to the Twelve, I observed these men, who our Father in Heaven has called as special witnesses of His Son, Jesus Christ. The Thursday morning meetings in the upper room of the temple were always a special experience for me. My heart was often filled with emotion as I listened to the members of the Twelve pray to their Father in Heaven, remembering these are the Twelve Apostles, chosen by our Father in Heaven and sustained by the Saints as prophets, seers, and revelators. As President Hunter would lead the Twelve through the agenda, I was continually reminded of Section 107.27 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which reads, And every decision made by either of these quorums must be by the unanimous voice of the same. That is, every member in each quorum must be agreed to its decisions in order to make their decisions of the same power or validity one with the other. The members of the Twelve strive to live according to the promptings of the Spirit. They speak their mind. However, they are also good listeners and speak when moved upon by the Holy Spirit. Their posture in quorum meetings is to listen and sense the directing power of the Spirit, which always leads to a unity of decision. I marveled as I watched the directing power of the Spirit touch the minds and hearts of the members of the Twelve, influencing the decision-making process. Decisions made by the Council of the First Presidency and the Council of the Twelve are directed by the Spirit because they strive continually to abide by the counsel of the Lord, found in section 107, 30, and 31 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which reads, The decisions of these quorums, or either of them, are to be made in all righteousness, in holiness and lowliness of heart, meekness and long-suffering, and in faith and virtue and knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity, because the promise is, if these things abound in them, they shall not be unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord. The members of the First Presidency, Quorum of the Twelve, the Seventy, and the Presiding Bishopric are truly men who are striving to be pure in heart a spirit of righteousness, love, and unity abounds in their quorum meetings. The Twelve love President Hunter, and President Howard W. Hunter loves the Twelve. President Hunter's gentle, persuasive leadership invites the Spirit of the Lord into all of their meetings. I hope that President Hunter will forgive me for relating an experience 
which portrayed to me the great love the Twelve have for each other, which love brings the Holy Spirit into their quorum meetings. Many will remember a number of years ago, President Hunter was informed that he would not walk again. However, his faith and determination was greater than that message. Daily, without fanfare and the knowledge of others, he went through some very strenuous and physical therapy exercises with determination, faith, and vision that he would walk again. During those difficult months, his brethren of the Twelve were praying for him daily in their quorum meetings and in their private prayers. Months later, on a Thursday morning, I went to President Hunter's office to discuss an agenda item for the temple meeting that morning. I found he had left early and was informed that he was walking to the temple. I questioned that information and then hurried to catch up with him. When I caught up with him, he was walking with the help of a walker. We walked together to the elevator and then up to the fourth floor. We went down the hall to the upper room of the temple. When their president walked into that room, the twelve stood and began to clap their hands. They tenderly watched him walk over to his chair and let his body down into the chair. Then, with magnificent love, honor, and tenderness, each of the twelve went up to him and extended to him an affectionate touch, kiss on the forehead, and a hug, showing their great love and admiration for him. They all sat down, and President Hunter thanked them and said, I was not supposed to walk again, but with the Lord's help and my determination, and most important, the faith of my brethren the Twelve, I am walking again. President Howard W. Hunter is an example of maintaining faith and determination in the face of adversity. The Twelve are examples of maintaining faith in prayer in behalf of those who are experiencing adversity. My brothers and sisters, I share these personal experiences with you because I was there. I have a humble desire to strengthen your faith in the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve, whom we sustain as prophets, seers, and revelators. These men, from my close observation, live close to the Lord. I have witnessed the power of the Holy Spirit touch their hearts and minds and give expression to their words. I have marveled at the unity of purpose of the First Presidency and the Twelve in serving the Lord. Christ and His prophets are one. I continually observe the love and sustaining power extended by His two counselors and the Twelve to our prophet leader, President Ezra Taft Benson. My witness from personal observation is that you can have unwavering faith in the United Council of the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve. They will lead you in the path of righteousness, happiness, and inner peace. 
my wife Donna, and our children have made it a practice to read, listen, and follow the counsel of the prophets. We have always been abundantly blessed in our homes, in our occupations, and in our personal lives. My brothers and sisters, there will yet be perilous and challenging times ahead. I admonish the saints to look to the prophets, study their words, teach their words in your family home evenings, sustain them in private and in public, pray for them in your private and family prayers, and in turn, in your lives, enjoy that inner peace that surpasses understanding. I leave my special witness of the reality of our Father in heaven, that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of all who will come unto him, and that his chosen prophets do walk the earth today. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I speak primarily to the young men and women of the Church throughout the world. This marvelous choir of beautiful youth has made it easier for me to speak from the heart. Your circumstances and personal challenges vary tremendously. Yet each of you is in that period of life when you make decisions that will affect the entire course of your life. I come to you as a friend with a sincere desire to help each one of you obtain the greatest and most lasting benefit from this crucial period of testing. I speak as I would to a son or daughter to communicate what I know to be true. I pray that you will understand the importance of three principles we will discuss. May there come promptings to you from the Lord through the Holy Ghost regarding their application in your life. I recognize that many of you will understand what I say because of decisions already made. I pray that others will be prompted to make the same personal commitments, for this counsel will have limited value until that is done. I'll explain with an example. My parents gave me a beautiful watch for high school graduation. I looked at it frequently because of the love it communicated. Each night, I carefully cleaned and wound it. As the years passed, I often neglected to wind the watch. Consequently, it stopped being useful, often when I most needed it. Today, I use an automatic watch. It is consistent and always gives me the correct time. It is totally dependable. I never need to worry whether I can count on it or not. I realize that, as with watches, there are differences in youth, some who need to be wound up while others are automatic because of important decisions already made. I commend you who are automatic, who have committed to be true to the Lord and to live by faith when you cannot see the end from the beginning. When faced with choices, you select the path consistent with the teachings of the Savior. I know you are criticized by those who call you fanatical, who cannot understand why you don't do what the crowd does. Hold fast to your principles. You cannot today remotely imagine what that decision to be unwaveringly obedient to the Lord 
will allow you to accomplish in life. Your quiet, uncompromising determination to live a righteous life will couple you to inspiration and power beyond your capacity now to understand. To others, if an honest evaluation of your life reveals a continuing dependency on individuals or things that are not good, please listen. I sincerely want to help you. If you understand and use the principles we will now review, they will bring you great reward. The first principle, place the Savior, his teachings, and his Church at the center of your life. Make sure that all decisions comply with this standard. This principle will see you through periods of testing and growth. Upward growth occurs in cycles that build upon each other in an ascending spiral of capacity and understanding. They are often not easy, but they are always beneficial. As you walk the path of righteousness, you will grow in strength, understanding, and self-esteem. You will discover hidden talents and unknown capacities. The whole course of your life may be altered for your happiness and the purposes of the Lord. The next principle. Recognize that enduring happiness comes from what you are, not from what you have. Real joy comes from righteous character, and that is built from a pattern of consistent righteous decisions. When the things that you acquire are used as tools to help others, they won't rule your life. Your righteous decisions determine who you are and what is important to you. They make doing the right things easier. For happiness now and throughout your life, steadfastly obey the Lord no matter what pressure you feel to do otherwise. And now the last principle. Stay morally clean. Sexual intimacy outside of the bonds of marriage and I emphasize that means any involvement of the sacred private parts of the body is forbidden by God. While the world has other standards, you must stay morally clean. There are many reasons. Chief among them is that it is a commandment of the God of God the violation of which he considers to be serious transgression that brings great unhappiness. To ensure you keep this sacred commandment, in moments of quiet reflection when you feel the impressions of the Holy Ghost, set standards of what you will do and what you will not do when temptation comes, for it surely will. When you find yourself then in the battlefield of life, don't change your standards. Don't abandon them. No matter how you feel, no matter what pressure is on you, Satan will use rationalization to destroy you. That is, he will twist something you know to be wrong so that it appears to be acceptable, and thus 
progressively lead you to destruction. Love, as defined by the Lord, elevates, protects, respects, and enriches another. It motivates one to make sacrifices for another. Satan promotes counterfeit love, which is lust. It is driven by a hunger to appease personal appetite. One who practices this deception cares little for the pain and destruction caused another. While camouflaged often by flattering words, its motivation is self-gratification. You know how to be clean. Live a righteous life. We trust you to do it. The Lord will bless you richly and will help you keep clean and pure. How can you keep your resolve to live worthily? How can you be sure that your resolve will not be eroded by the pressures around you? Choose good friends. Those who have made similar decisions in their lives. Those like yourself who are wise enough to live a life of order and restraint. When one gets off track, it is generally because the other kind of friends were chosen. Be surrounded by true friends who accept you the way you are and leave you better because of their association. Consistently live the truth you already know. Much of the disappointment and tragedy that youth encounters comes from misuse of the increased freedom to act that is necessary for you to grow. Now, when you have increasing responsibility for the decisions you make in life, you will make them wisely because of your unwavering determination to obey the Lord. You will learn that the restraints provided by the teachings of the Lord actually form a platform to greater freedom. If they are hurriedly dismantled in the misuse of increased personal choice, there will result binding chains of transgression. Don't be found in compromising circumstances. Seek counsel from those who are worthy. Pray in faith for help. Go to your Father in heaven. He wants to help you. But because of your agency, you need to take the first step. Important lessons will be learned as you are on your knees. Some will distill in your mind and heart as you seek to establish the right balance in your life. Powerful personal development will come through urgent prayer offered in faith from a foundation of righteousness. When all the challenges pour down on you, you will have a quiet inner feeling of support. You will be prompted to know what to do. You can live in a world of turmoil and great challenge and be at peace. You will be inspired to know what to do and to have the power or capacity to do it. I know that the principles we have discussed are true. They have been proven in my own personal life with my companion Janine, who excels me in every worthwhile quality. I have walked the path shared with you today. I know these truths are correct, and I pray somehow there will come a reinforcement through this Spirit to your mind and heart of their great worth when they are challenged in your life.
Test your daily acts and thoughts against the principles we have reviewed. Are you making progress toward them? Or have you begun to wander down destructive paths? Life is a workshop where you can test the correctness of the principles you have chosen to guide your life. Now is the time to set your course to establish fundamental priorities. You will learn to select from many good and bad things those that are righteous and most important. Young women, use the inspiring young women values and the reference scriptures to help you do this. Young men, use the scriptures regarding priesthood to give your life focus. I encourage both to use the pamphlet for the strength of youth. It will bless you in your resolve to be pure. As the mighty eagle, you can rise to glorious heights. You can discover truths that will ignite your spirit. Do you believe that? I know you can. As you combine positive experiences of life with the eternal doctrinal truths, you will discover what it means to be a divine child of a Father in heaven who is perfect. As you apply His truths, they will generate vision in your mind and commitment in your heart. You will be inspired and can have power beyond your own capacity. You can qualify through that divine power to be instruments in the hands of God to accomplish what you could not do alone. You will learn to make reality your worthy dreams for the future. You will be led to see a vision of your true potential and then through obedience to correct principles and the consistent, appropriate use of moral agency begin to convert that potential into reality. We love you. We need you. We pray for you. You are the instruments the Lord will use in the future. Please pray about what I have said to gain your own witness until you know it can happen, and then, as you are righteous, it will happen to you. As you live high standards publicly and privately and even under great pressure adhere to them, you raise the vision of others, helping them realize more of their divine capacity. Like a worthy magnet, you will draw others to a higher standard of life. The power of your worthy example is increased as you help others caught in the web of transgression and guide them into a harbor of safety where there is parental strength and priesthood inspiration, where they can repair through repentance the strained and damaged parts of their character. Many yearn to overcome transgressions that bind them to a path they really don't want. While public actions denounce any desire to change, privately they want to change but don't know where to begin. Be that saving influence in their lives. Help them. In closing, I return to my automatic watch. It is powered by a solar cell, and a function must be exposed to light. We are like that. We operate on light and need a constant renewal of that light. If we drift into a path where there is darkness, it can be extraordinarily difficult to come back. You will not have that challenge because you 
will live in the light of truth. There is one more blessing that will come from your decision to be obedient. Of all that is the most beautiful, but the most difficult to talk about, as you stay morally clean and consistently obey the teachings of the Lord, your love for your Savior will deepen, your understanding of your Father in Heaven will broaden, and you will love them more and more until all you really want to do is to know their will and with their power to do it. I know they love you. They know you personally, every detail of your life, every thought, every desire to strengthen yourself and to change. Be obedient to them, and they will bless you with the power to be obedient to their teachings. I so testify in love for you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. A hundred and forty-seven years ago, next June, the Prophet Joseph Smith was murdered in the Carthage jail by a volley of shots fired by a mob with blackened faces. With him in the cell was a disciple, John Taylor, who shared the terror of this assault and who was gravely wounded, but who did not share a martyr's fate with Joseph and his brother Hiram. Sometime after the martyrdom, John Taylor, who had become the third president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, wrote this, Joseph Smith, the prophet and seer of the Lord, has done more save Jesus only for the salvation of men in this world than any other man that ever lived in it. This mortal linkage between Joseph Smith the prophet and Jesus Christ the Savior and Redeemer invites comparisons between their lives and their characters. They both came out of a working-class environment. Jesus was the stepson of a carpenter. Joseph Smith's father was a farmer. Neither had wealthy, powerful, or influential relatives or friends. Both experienced the trauma arising from economic stress. Both came from solid homes of high spirituality. Mary and Joseph had both conversed with beings from the spiritual world. Joseph Smith's father received a remarkable series of visions when Joseph Smith, Jr. was a boy and his mother had had an unusual spiritual experience not long before his birth. Neither Jesus nor Joseph Smith had significant formal schooling, and neither of them, therefore, was a graduate of a great university nor a fellow in a distinguished academic society. Both of them were highly precocious. At age 12, Jesus was found teaching the learned rabbis in the temple who were astonished to find one so young possessed of such vast wisdom and knowledge. In his fifteenth year, Joseph had an experience which enabled him to instruct his family and others who would listen about the nature, the power, and the purposes of God, the Eternal Father, and His Son, Jesus Christ. Both were provincials. 
Jesus never ventured beyond the environs of the Holy Land during his earthly ministry, while Joseph Smith spent his entire life within a relatively small area in the United States and Canada. Both were highly controversial figures, boldly attacking the existing order of things. Jesus condemned the scribes, the Pharisees, and the hypocrites, while Joseph condemned a misguided ministry. Both attracted strong disciples and powerful enemies. It is through the disciples of Jesus and Joseph that their fame and present influence are largely known. Both of them attracted opposition of such bitterness that both were killed by their enemies. While both had kind and loving natures, both were fearless in enforcing the right. Jesus, for instance, angered by the merchants in the temple, drove them away with a whip. And on more than one occasion, Joseph engaged in physical combat to assert the right. Both completed their missions at an early age. Jesus was crucified at age 33, while Joseph died as a martyr at age 38 and a half. Both were killed as the result of betrayals by erstwhile disciples. Both were prayerful by nature. Before his earthly ministry began, the Savior spent 40 days in the wilderness engaged in fervent fasting and prayer. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, in Gethsemane, on the cross, and on other occasions he engaged in fervent prayers to his Heavenly Father, pleading for guidance or assistance. Joseph Smith's ministry actually began with the fervent prayer he offered in the Sacred Grove, which resulted in the Father and the Son appearing to him. Thereafter, his life was marked by repeated prayers offered for divine help in solving the problems he faced, whether great or small. Their births were foreseen long in advance. The Savior, according to the scriptures, was beloved and chosen from the beginning. Even him whom God declared should come in the meridian of time, who was prepared from before the foundation of the world. Joseph of old, the son of Jacob, or Israel, prophesied that in the latter days a choice seer would be raised up, and his name shall be called after me, he prophesied, and it shall be after the name of his father, which is an ancient prophetic reference to Joseph Smith and his father, Joseph Smith, Sr. While the Savior and Joseph Smith shared these and many other qualities, they were very different in basic ways. The main difference lay in the Savior's unusual nature and identity. He functioned on a plane which was beyond the Prophet Joseph Smith's comprehension. Jesus is a member of the Godhead, chosen before the creation of the world to become the Savior and the Redeemer of mankind. He was the active force in the creation. He is the head of the Church. Through the Atonement, He has, in a sense, purchased us so that we are His children. And by becoming members of the Church, we have taken His name upon us. The various roles He played and the various names by which He is known in the Holy Scriptures give a hint of the preeminent status of the Savior compared to Joseph Smith or to any other man. He is the Jehovah of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
He is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Creator. He is our advocate with the Father. He is our exemplar. He is often called the Good Shepherd or the Great Judge. He is sometimes referred to as our King or as the King of Kings, as the Lamb of God, or as the Light of the World or the Lawgiver or the Mediator. Sometimes he is called the Messenger of the Covenant or the Rock of our Salvation, the Chief Cornerstone, the Son of Man, the Anointed One, the Deliverer, or the Man of Sorrows, or the Only Begotten of the Father. Not only does he fill these varied roles, but with the Father he shares characteristics unknown to mortal men like the Prophet Joseph Smith. He knows all things, and therefore he is omniscient. He has all power, and therefore he is omnipotent. And through the light of Christ, he is omnipresent. No wonder, then, that John the Baptist, who up until his time was the greatest prophet of all, said of the Savior that he, John, was not worthy to unloose his shoes latchet. While the Savior's spiritual status is beyond compare, his role as the only begotten of the Father does create a common physical ground upon which he meets with the Prophet Joseph Smith and other men. The Savior was born of a mortal mother, but was sired by an eternal father. Therefore, he shared an element of mortality with the Prophet Joseph Smith because of his mother Mary. Yet he also had within him the power to lay down his life or to take it up again because of his eternal father. While we honor and revere Joseph Smith as the prophet of the Restoration and seek to emulate his qualities of character, we adore and worship the Savior. That adoration is shown at each sacrament service when we covenant to take upon us the name of Jesus Christ, to always remember him and to keep the commandments which he has given to us that we may always have his Spirit to be with us. The supernal status of our Savior Jesus Christ and the preeminent place which he occupies in the eternal scheme of things cause us to stand in awe at what has been called the condescension of Christ, meaning his willingness to step down from his exalted place and to go forth, as the scripture says, suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind, that he may loose the bands of death which bind his people, and he will take upon him infirmities that his bowels may be filled with mercy according to the flesh, that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities, that he might blot out their transgressions according to the power of his deliverance. I bear testimony obtained through the power of the Holy Ghost that Jesus Christ is our Savior and Redeemer, the only begotten of the Father in the flesh. I testify that the Savior is a resurrected being, having a tangible body of flesh and bones, and that his Heavenly Father, who is also the Father of the spirits of us all, similarly has a tangible body of flesh and bones. I also testify that Jesus Christ is the head of the Church to which we belong and which bears his holy name, 
and that Joseph Smith, of whom I have spoken, was the prophet through whom the true Church of Jesus Christ was restored to the earth by the ministering of angels many centuries after the apostasy, and to whom was given the priesthood keys and authority necessary to direct the Savior's earthly Church. Finally, I testify that through an unbroken chain, the prophetic keys and authority received by the Prophet Joseph Smith have been transmitted through intervening generations and today are held intact by today's Prophet Ezra Taft Benson, who stands as the earthly head of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, possessing all the keys and authority necessary to help bring about the exaltation of God's children. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Never in my wildest dreams did I think that one day I would be standing at this pulpit giving a talk. I thought of putting a pillow between my knees so you wouldn't think that there was a woodpecker up here working on the pulpit. <laughs> it's a humbling experience, brothers and sisters, to stand before you, and I pray that the Lord's Spirit will be with us all. Today I would like to talk about sacrament meeting. Your bishop organizes and oversees the meeting to ensure that it is undertaken in a spirit of reverence, thankfulness, and worship and conducted with dignity, warmth, and the Spirit of the Lord. I hope that each person who attends will be welcomed at the door and will sense a great feeling of love and caring that the bishop has. That is symbolic of the Lord's great unconditional love for each of us. We should feel wanted, valued, and accepted at these meetings. No one should feel like a stranger. Sacrament meeting is the most important meeting of the week, the one the Lord has commanded us to attend. It is a time to worship the Savior. What does that mean, to worship? It means to reverently show love and allegiance to Him, to thank Him, to honor Him, and remember the sacrifices for each of us, and to thank Him. In sacrament meeting, we often do this through prayer, music, talks, scripture, and our testimony. His Spirit should be there. We partake of the sacrament in remembrance of His body and blood, symbolizing His resurrection and Atonement. We should think about His life and sacrifice during the passing of the sacrament. Our sacrament meeting should be a time to talk of Christ, rejoice in Christ, preach of Christ, and prophesize of Christ. To paraphrase Nephi, it is also a time to learn the doctrines of the Church, to feel the Spirit, and to be spiritually enlightened. Sacrament meeting is so important that the Lord revealed specific instructions about the meeting to Joseph Smith. That message is recorded in the 59th section of the Doctrine and Covenants. And let me quote, And that thou may, mayest more fully keep thyself unspotted from the world, thou shalt go to the house of prayer and offer up thy sacraments upon my holy day. For verily, this is a day appointed unto you to rest from your labors and to pay devotions unto the Most High. Nevertheless, thou bowels offered up in righteousness on all days and at all times, 
But remember that on this, the Lord's day, thou shalt offer thine oblations and thy sacraments unto the Most High, confessing thy sins to the brethren and before the Lord. And on this day thou shalt do none other thing, only let thy food be prepared with singleness of heart, that they may be perfect, or in other words, that joy may be full." That our joy may be full. Our experience in sacrament meetings should be filled with joy. Let me just mention a couple things that will help us find joy in sacrament meeting. There are many ways. First, come with an attitude of worshiping the Lord. Some people don't understand, and they look at worship service as just another Sunday meeting, a part of a three-hour routine. It is not. It should be a time of true worship for the Savior, a time when we desire to be close to Him, to convey our love to Him, to feel His Spirit. Number two, teach our children the significance of worship service. We want our children there, and we also want them to learn reverence, which is a form of love for the Savior. If a baby is noisy, we need to take him out of the chapel until they calm down. We want our children to understand that it is a worship service for Jesus, where we show Him we love Him. You may be surprised at how much your children understand about this. Alma tells us in the Book of Mormon that, quote, little children do have words given unto them many times which confound the wise and the learned, unquote. They can be very sensitive to the Spirit, and we love our children. Number three. Sing enthusiastic praises to God. As we sing wholeheartedly, reaffirming our love for the Savior, we can feel the Spirit. I must admit that I am the world's worst singer. In junior high school, my music teacher said to me, Mac, do us a favor and just move your lips when you sing. (laughs) But I still try, and I feel the Spirit when I sing. It's a blessing available to all of us. Number four, when we speak to the congregation, include scriptural references, your testimony, and the Savior in your talk. I've heard instances when the Savior is not even mentioned in a sacrament meeting. I hope this is never the case. He is the focus of our sacrament meeting, and all that is said there should bring us closer to Him. The scriptures are our basic commentary on the Savior and His doctrines. Use them regularly in your talks. We discover new treasures in them, and they are crucial to our gospel enlightenment. And don't be afraid to include your personal feelings about the Savior, His gospel, and instances when you have felt the Spirit. Our testimonies grow when we hear testimonies of others. Some people have stronger testimony than others, and that's all right. Each of us is growing in the gospel. We should not feel pressured to say things that do not truthfully express our experiences. We should not be ashamed of what we know, whatever stage our testimony may be in. Share it with others. And finally, remember the Savior as you partake of the sacrament. Some people have told me that they have heard sacrament prayers so often that they don't even hear them when the sacrament is blessed. Perhaps this is because they don't understand what is being said. 
perhaps you might want to pull your scriptures at the proper time and study these prayers. They contain profound and significant information about our promises to the Lord and His promises to us. Do you know where to find the sacrament prayers? Well, first in the Doctrine and Covenants, the 20th section, or in the Book of Mormon, Moroni, chapter 4 and 5. In these sacrament prayers, for the bread and for the water, symbolic of the body and the blood of the Savior, you witness or promise certain things. As you partake of the sacrament, you witness that you are willing to take the name of Jesus Christ, the Son, upon you. This means that you are willing to be baptized, to proclaim gospel truth in His name, and to represent Him in doing His work here on this earth. You also witness that you will always remember Him and keep His commandments. Those are serious, sacred commitments. And in return, as you keep your promises, you are blessed that you may always have His Spirit to be with you. We read in 2 Nephi chapter 25, verse 29, quote, The right way is to believe in Christ and deny Him not. And Christ is the Holy One of Israel. Wherefore ye must bow down before Him and worship Him with all your might, mind, and strength, and your whole soul." Unquote. That we may make sacrament meeting a joyful time for worshiping our Savior, I pray. I believe with all my soul in Jesus Christ, our elder brother. May we understand His teachings and follow Him by a spiritual sacrament meeting, prayer, and reading of the scriptures. This is His divine Church. Through the Prophet Joseph Smith, the Lord ushered in fullness of the gospel in this last dispensation of time. President Ezra Taft Benson, our true and living prophet, is, is our true and living prophet. And I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.